It's CES week, which means I haven't slept since Sunday, and I've spent the week glued to my inbox. Plus, Samsung decided to poop in CES's cornflakes by releasing one of the biggest phones of the year just 14 days into it. It's the benefit of a Dowd podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week was CES week, which would normally mean I was dog-tired from walking all over Las Vegas to see a bunch of technology, maybe 10% of which will ever see the light of day. But this week, CES was all virtual, which meant all of the work, but none of the drinking, which is kind of good news when you consider that in 2021, I'll probably get a few more months out of my shoes and my liver. So this week's podcast is going to be a little weird because CES was a little weird. I'm going to take you a little bit inside baseball by reading a few selections from my email pitches that I got this week. Some of them are amazing. Some of them are stupid. You just won't know, which is how I feel every time I enter my email address at CES. Plus, we're going to do a short segment on Samsung's Unpacked event. It'll be short because we're planning a lot more Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra coverage later this month. Spoiler alert. And if that all sounds busy, that's because I am. So let's get over it into the news of the week. This week, we're going to start off in Freelance Corner, where I publish two articles about the Galaxy S21 over on Android Central. First up is, does the Samsung Galaxy S21 have micro SD support? And I'm just going to say no and duck behind my desk because, yeah, that's going to piss off some people. But here's a pro tip, folks. It really shouldn't piss you off. I'll grant you I'm not a power user per se, but I haven't put an SD card into any phone that I've owned since the Galaxy S3. And do you need me to do the math on how long ago that was? Between Google Photos and other cloud services, I never store anything locally on a phone. I don't need to. But I know there are some niche cases out there, and I'm sorry, but I promise you, you're gonna be okay. The other piece I wrote pertains to the fingerprint sensor and screen protectors, as in, will they work? And the answer is, I don't know. I doubt it, unless you use a film protector or a whitestone dome protector. I tried a screen protector on my Galaxy FE, and it didn't go well. Anyway, good luck out there. And finally, I published two pieces over at Digital Trends, both pertaining to CES. The first is a news piece about a new robot vacuum from Eufy. The robot maker has twin turbine engines coming out this year, and it's going to suck pretty hard which in this one context is a good thing. Next, I wrote a feature about a company called Benji Lock by Hampton. Benji Lock came out with a trio of locks with fingerprint readers, a gym lock, a bike lock, and a front door lock. But the thing about all these locks is they have no connectivity at all. No Wi-Fi, no Bluetooth, no app. Everything is done on device. And it kind of freaked me out a little bit. So I wrote about it on Digital Trends. Check out my thoughts there. And now, on to the news. So the news this week is going to come in two parts because there's news from CES and then there's news outside of CES and we're going to start with the news outside CES. If you recall my internal debate on whether or not to get the new MacBooks or not, the reviews of the devices were phenomenal and I'm happy to report that if that second stimulus check comes through, I'll probably be unboxing one on the channel. <laughs> anyway, it seems that there are some Bluetooth issues with the laptops, meaning an inability to connect to Bluetooth or stay connected. 
That's kind of a problem, although not for me because I never use Bluetooth headphones on a computer. I figure I'm sitting here, why do I need to be wireless? Anyway, Apple is working on a fix of these issues, which is great and all, but if people are gonna give crap to Cyberpunk 2077, I think we have to throw a little shade Apple's way too. I mean, come on, this is Bluetooth. This is basic functionality, and it shouldn't have been overlooked. My only thought is maybe the product testers at Apple only tested with like AirPods or something, and they're like, yep, this works, ship it. Come on, Apple. And by the way, as a side note, if I were in charge of Apple or Samsung or Google or any other Android manufacturer, the first thing that I would do is mandate that all senior executives go out and buy a phone that we don't make. It's kind of like having the other team's playbook. Anyway, back to Apple. Apple has actually acknowledged the problem, which is curiously un-Apple-like, and has promised to fix, but no word as to when, so you're all just going to have to wait until Apple feels like fixing it. Now that sounds Apple-like. Quibi, or Quibi, or whatever, Quibi is dead, long live Quibi on Roku. This week saw the closing of a deal where Roku acquires all the original content that Quibi had the rights to before it couldn't convince anyone to watch it, and then it died. All that content will be coming to the Roku channel, which is free, by the way, sometime this year. What isn't clear is what format these shows will take. Will they still be 10-minute chunks? Will they be edited together into one long show? Will you still be able to turn your device and see other action going on around everyone? There's a lot of questions here, and Roku isn't answering them, but it's nice to see that all the work that went into these shows will not be wasted. I honestly thought Quibi was a good concept, to be honest. I dug it, but for some reason, they just couldn't figure out how to get millions of people stuck in their homes to watch streaming content. I know, weird, right? It just launched at the wrong time without one single, you really need to watch this show. Hell, I have HBO Max right now for the next six months because I wanted to watch Wonder Woman 1984, and yeah... That was a bad decision, but still, Wonder Woman was, at the time, must-watch content. Now that I've watched it, not so much. Die Hard, or whatever other shows that Quibi has, not so much. But I do have Roku, so I may yet watch some of those shows. Or I may not, because as I've said time and again, there's a crap ton of other stuff out there to watch, including our next story. The first two episodes of WandaVision dropped this week, and I took 22 minutes out of my day to watch the first episode. I didn't realize that these were going to be sitcom-length episodes, which is actually really convenient considering how busy I am this week. Anyway, the first episode is 22 minutes long, followed by a full 7.5 minutes of credits, adding over 25% to the total runtime for just credits. Jeez, Marvel. Anyway, the first episode is quite charming, and it follows Wanda Maximoff and Vision as they move into a brand new home straight out of the 1950s. I'm pretty sure they live in the same neighborhood as I Dream of Jeannie and Leave it to Beaver. Wanda is a housewife learning how to do housewife stuff, I guess, and Vision works at some vague job doing vague job things, and I'm fairly sure that's kind of the point for both of them. And if it sounds generic as hell... I'm fairly sure that that is also the point, so we'll have to see how that develops, but my one-episode review is it's fun and charming and I want to watch more. Saudi Prince MBS asked the question, what if a city could be built along a 170-kilometer line costing around $500 billion with a B dollars? I would say... That sounds stupid. The line would be, air quotes, a five-minute walk wide. 
and I would say that that very greatly depends on the person walking, but fair enough. MBS proposes that his city be called The Line, in all caps, by the way. According to the Crown Prince, who the Gizmodo article labels as vicious and who I label as just plain old deluded, but anyway, according to Salman, you'll be able to travel from one end to the other in just 20 minutes, which math says means you'll be traveling at 317 miles per hour, and for the record, no one travels that fast along land. Anyway, according to the website, all essential city services would be located within a five-minute walk, and again, that five-minute walk thing. There's going to be no roads anywhere in the line, and it'll have a population of one million people with 380,000 jobs, which, my math says, is in an unemployment rate of about 62%, which is not awesome. The Gizmodo article pulls apart a lot of other details that just don't add up, but hey, it's a crazy concept, right? It's a line, so... Sure, a city in a line sounds like a totally not terrible idea, except it probably is. We talked briefly, <laughs> briefly, about the failed insurrection at the Capitol building. And as it turns out, since then, social media app Parler has had a really bad week. Folks on the right took to Parler to set up and organize the march on the Capitol building. And following the events of last week, Parler was ejected from Google's App Store Apple's App Store, and by the way, Parler hosted its backend on Amazon, and they kicked them off too. But let's pour a little salt on the wound, because before that purge happened, a hacker who goes by the name Donk underscore NB broke into Parler and scraped about 80 terabytes worth of data from the service. The culprit, it seems, was really bad coding by the makers of Parler. The public-facing API required no authentication, and when users deleted posts... You know, the ones that said, Come on, Uncle Jesse, let's go kill us some senators. Stuff like that. Well, the site doesn't actually delete that data. Parler also failed to scrub exif data from photos, meaning that geolocations remained in the photos so they could be traced to individual users. Basically... The code was a shit show and made the hacker's job quite easy. She archived the data so it will remain intact for anyone who wants to peruse it, you know, like journalists or prosecutors or bosses of soon-to-be ex-employees, stuff like that. It's really kind of adorable. Get ready, Star Wars fans, because you're about to get hit by a wave of content in the gaming world. EA has had an exclusive license to the Star Wars universe for the past eight years, but that exclusivity has now ended, meaning that other game makers can soon get in on the action. And the most exciting one comes in the form of Ubisoft, who is said to be working with Lucasfilm to develop an open-world Star Wars game. This is basically World of Warcraft, but with lightsabers and X-Wing fighters, which sounds pretty compelling and would be even more compelling had Cyberpunk 2077 not been such a disaster. Because, come on, you thought people were excited about Cyberpunk? Just wait until Star Wars fans get their hands on an open world game like that. It's going to be crazy sauce. It could also be really cool and I'll be excited to see what comes of all of it and I'm sure we'll all be praying that it isn't buggy as all hell. You know, like the prequels and the sequels. Okay, and the original trilogy. Pretty much everything except for The Mandalorian. And finally, and I mean this in the most sincere sense possible, and finally, multi-user accounts and app sharing are finally, finally coming to the Oculus Quest, and thank God. No more will I have to share a friends list with my teenage son because just... 
damn. But anyway, the much-requested feature is finally coming to the Oculus Quest, and of course, all account holders will also have to have Facebook accounts because Mark Zuckerberg is a terrible person. But whatever. This is far, 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 far long overdue, and I'm psyched that it's finally coming. As if this week wasn't busy enough, Samsung decided to go ahead and drop its first flagships of the year, the Galaxy S21, S21 Plus, and S21 Ultra. Additionally, they dropped the Galaxy Smart Tags and the Galaxy Buds Pro. The Smart Tags are basically tile by Samsung. There are some interesting questions involved here. Smart Tags will work with smart things, and according to Samsung, will use the entire network of existing Samsung Galaxy devices out there to pin down your item's location. That's pretty huge because (laughs) there's a lot of Samsung devices out there, like 32% of the market share in the U.S. last I checked. So how is all this going to work exactly is a bit unclear, but they're coming and they could be pretty great. Or they could be a gimmick that'll never catch on because Tile's already been around for like 10 years. So (laughs) I guess we'll find out. The Galaxy Buds Pro similarly look interesting, but I also have some questions there, too. Gone are the beans, which is a bit of a shame we hardly knew ye, in favor of a more traditional shove-these-things-into-your-ears design. But Samsung is doing some interesting things with active noise cancellation, such as automatically turning it off when it identifies your voice speaking, so if you start ordering coffee or something, they auto-turn on pass-through mode. That's awesome, except if you're like me and you have no inner monologue whatsoever, you're basically talking all the time. Then, it's not so good. I'm kind of hoping that there's a manual control in there somewhere, but we'll see. That's the big news there. Moving on to the phones, you've got three variants. The first two, the Galaxy S21 and the Galaxy S21 Plus, start at $800 and $1,000 respectively, which is a nice surprise considering the base model last year started at $1,000. They both have flat screens, and thank God. They run at 120 hertz. Yeah. And both have the Snapdragon 888 in the U.S. and the newly introduced Exynos 2100, which came out this week but didn't make the news because... Exynos. The refresh rate is going to be a dynamic refresh rate, ramping up to 120 hertz when you're scrolling and kicking it back down to 10 hertz when you're reading or whatever. It'll help save your battery, which is a good thing. Both the S21 and the S21 Plus have the same front-facing camera, a 10-megapixel ultrawide camera. The rear cameras are a 12-megapixel wide-angle main camera, a 12-megapixel ultrawide camera, and a 64-megapixel telephoto lens with 3x optical zoom. The camera housing is one of the biggest design changes. The metal rails along the sides of the phone extend over into the camera housing, which makes for a striking two-tone design and also protects the camera. I like it, except for the fact that it's a camera bump and it's not covered in glass, so it's got that going for it, but it's still a camera bump. The back of the phone is plastic on both the S21 and the S21 Plus. That's not really a problem, to be honest, but it's worth mentioning. Now for the kickers. There is no micro SD support in any of the phones. What? You heard me. No SD card support. That's a bold decision, but honestly, with the sheer quantity of thumb drives out there that work with USB Type-C and Android, and with the cloud, 
I haven't needed an SD card in almost a decade. It's a bold choice that's going to piss off a few very, very loud people, but it is a choice that has been made. Oh, and by the way, Samsung also ditched MST, which was the stuff in your phone that allowed you to use the magnetic stripe readers at credit card machines. You probably didn't even realize it was there because it's been a while since Samsung talked about it. LG uses similar tech in its phones, which I didn't know about until the V60, but... I'm an idiot. You knew that going in. So LG has it. Samsung does not anymore. And chances are any credit card reader you're going to use it on has NFC anyway. So let's move on to the big show, the Samsung Galaxy S21 Ultra. Much of what I said about the other phones is here too, but there are two big additions to this device, one which I'm excited about and one which, eh, I'm not. The one I'm excited about is the addition of a 10x optical zoom periscope lens, and I have been clamoring about this for years, and now that all gymnastics events have been canceled, I'll finally have a camera that can take photos of my daughter at gymnastics events. Shit. That is a feature that I've been dying to try out, and now it looks like I'll finally be able to. That alone is exciting. The other feature is... eh. S Pen support, though the Ultra does not come with nor feature a place to put the S Pen. Why? We don't know, and probably neither does Samsung, except now it can sell us one, so huzzah! Actually, Samsung can sell us two S Pens, the S Pen and the, I'm not kidding about this, the S Pen Pro. That's right, Samsung proed up the freaking S Pen. Basically, the S Pen is just for writing and screen drawing, stuff like that. The S Pen Pro, which isn't even coming out until later this year, gives you Bluetooth stuff like gesture navigation and controlling your phone from across the room. whoop de frickin' do The S Pen Lite is $40. The S Pen Pro hasn't announced the price yet, but whatever. They both suck. If there was a place to keep the S Pen in the phone... Different conversation, but Samsung wants more monies, so they're selling it separately. The jerks. Anyway, let's take a moment to talk about black, because Samsung took three full minutes to talk about how it invented black. Like, seriously, this was straight out of Johnny Aluminium Ives' playbook with this montage of scientists creating the blackest black that's ever black to black. It's black, people. It's Phantom Black. Now, why Samsung felt the need to go on for three minutes in a pre-recorded presentation, mind you, to talk about Black, I will never know. See, it's not like this is a live demo and Samsung just happened to put the wrong Black enthusiast out onto the stage to wax poetic about how they redeveloped a new version of the same color and just droned on and on while the MC was like, um, guys, what do we do here? No, this was planned and taped and edited. Samsung wanted you to know that the phone is black, and it apparently is a really, really hard to make black. Me? I mean, I just went to Home Depot and picked up a can of black paint for 20 bucks, but yeah, Samsung is really proud of its black. Good for Samsung. It'll probably be impossible to keep clean. So, that was Samsung this week. Three new phones, some tags, and some buds, and it took 75 freaking minutes to talk about all of it. Lord help us, it took so long to get through this. Samsung needs to work on its brevity. And one last thing, I think I speak for all of us when I say, R.I.P. Mystic Bronze. Or should I say, R.I.P. Mystic Bronze!
Now, before we move on, I would like to ask for a moment of silence. You might recall how much I enjoyed using the Pixel 4a, a strong contender for my favorite phone of the year. Well, this week after the Samsung Galaxy S21 was announced, T-Mobile, who I'm sure you're aware by now is my carrier, kind of went a little wild a little bit. Because I got an email saying, hey, if you trade in a qualifying phone, we'll give you $800 off an S21, which... Yeah, whatever. The fact of the matter is, I actually own very few phones. Most of them are review devices, and I can't give them away. Not to you, not to a carrier for a discount. So, whatever. But when I read the fine print and saw that the Pixel 4a was one of the devices... Um, what? Yes, the Pixel 4a was an eligible device to get $800 off an S21. The Pixel 4a sells for $349 brand new and less than $300 on Swappa, by the way. I mean, I love the phone, but come on. So the good news is we're getting an S21 Ultra to review. Yay! The bad news is the Google Pixel 4a will be sent to T-Mobile for extermination or whatever they do to trade in phones. They probably sell them on Swappa, or at least they should. Anyway, so this segment also serves as a PSA. If you're on T-Mobile, which is a very solid network, by the way, check your phone inventory. You might be able to score an S21 for free, or be like me and grab an S21 Ultra for $400. Now, that is assuming I stay with T-Mobile for like two years, but I'm not planning on going anywhere, so that wasn't a problem for me. Yes, like... $550 of that discount is in the form of bill credits over the next two years. So if I cancel, I won't get the rest of the bill credits and I'll actually owe T-Mobile a lot of money. Oh well, so that's the caveat. But I just want to say, I will miss you dearly, Pixel 4a. You are amazing in every way, but for the good of the show, I have to let you go. And maybe buy a new one sometime down the line, we'll see. So, okay, a moment of silence, then on to the CES portion of the show. So it wasn't all just Samsung this week. CES also happened, and it was virtual, and that was just weird. My registration also got in very, very late, so I missed the flood of emails from PR people, which I'll be honest... I was a little sad about, but never fear, my inbox was still punished for a good couple of weeks, and I got some goodies. So now, how I'm going to do this next session is going to be very similar to how I do the news. In fact, I'm even going to bring back the same music, because it's my show, I can do that. I'm going to alternate between news stories that came out of CES and emails that caught my attention, because they were cool, or possibly ridiculous, or both. So without further ado, let's get to more news of the week. TCL and LG both took time out of CES to show off rollable concept devices that they're both building. Actually, concept device isn't right because a concept device indicates it's like a prototype. In both TCL and LG's case, we're expecting to see expanding rollable phones that turn into tablets this year, and I'm hella excited about them. Now, I mean, I do have some reservations, but honestly, with how quickly I fell in love with the LG Wing, I think there's a place in my heart for these devices. 
On the one hand, the demonstrations we saw from both companies indicate there's not much extra space to be had when you expand the screen. Like, it turns from a phone into a small tablet, and I wonder, ultimately, how useful that's going to be. But at the same time, honestly, and I mean this with all respect... Who freaking cares? It's a rollable, expanding screen. Take my money! Now, let's get over to my inbox. This week, a Japanese company called Quantum Operation Inc. introduced a wearable, non-invasive glucose monitor that measures your glucose levels continuously. The device itself looks a bit like a chunky Apple watch with a square screen on the front and an admittedly bulky watch band. The company uses spectroscopy tech, which honestly kind of sounds made up, but this technology is built into the watch and the band and can continuously scan glucose levels. This is a pretty amazing product seen as how non-invasive glucose meters would be a major find for the healthcare industry. There is one wearable from LibraFree that claims to do something similar. Also, a company called Levels uses tiny implantable devices to monitor glucose levels, which is close, but it's that implantable thing that people are trying to get rid of. This device will connect to an app and provide continuous data on glucose levels, which is pretty cool. It sounds like the company is looking to distribute this device as a healthcare device, meaning you'll get it through your insurance company, not at Walgreens. And according to Quantum, they're about a year out from full production. Color me interested, this will be a developing story. LG wasn't done with the rollable screen game as it also debuted a semi-transparent rollable TV that extends out of the base of your bed and you can see through it. Kind of. About 40% worth. Either way, it's Interesting. Much like the rollable TV we first saw in 2018, I believe, the TV pops up from a base and extends as far as it needs to to relay the information that it's trying to convey. That can be a full TV show or just a strip of news down at the bottom of the screen. But the interesting part here is the translucence, because if you can see through your TV... I mean, it's cool, but I'm not sure how actually useful that TV is. Seems like things passing on the other side could be distracting, but something this could be kind of a future advertising thing, like on the bus stops or windows, and I'm definitely not sure about that. I mean, I live in Chicago, and I'm just not sure how well a rollable OLED TV would stand up to elements or graffiti. I'm just saying, it's pretty cool, and it also means that we're one step closer to a transparent phone, and now... Let's go back to the inbox. This next email pitch comes from a company called Philo, who is developing a connected baby seat designed with the purpose of keeping children from being accidentally left behind in hot cars. This is actually a really great idea. Anywhere between 35 to 40 children die every year due to being left behind in cars on a hot day. And as a parent, I can't imagine anything more horrible. But I have to be totally honest here. That's not why I'm reading this email. I read this email because the subject line reads, and I quote, Hot Car Baby Saving Tech as CES 2021. And there are just so many questions here. Is it hot car baby saving tech? Or is it hot car baby saving tech? Is this like for an attractive child of a car? Or is it an attractive baby in a car? Or is it a normal baby in an attractive car? I'm just so confused. I had to read the email. And I have to wonder if that was the intent all along. Now back to the news. 
OnePlus unveiled its new fitness band at the show. It's only coming to India, unfortunately, but whether that's unfortunate for the rest of the world or for India remains to be seen. Because reviews of the smart band also came out this week, and while the band gets points for style, actual functionality seems to be lacking with terrible battery life and unreliable GPS. Honestly... I'm not really liking what I'm seeing from OnePlus of late. It seems like OnePlus is trying to be the cheap flagship killer of old while still trying to push flagship-level hardware, and it's not really getting either completely right. I hope OnePlus can right the ship at some point soon. Half-measures aren't really doing anyone any good. And now, back to the inbox. This week, I got an email pitch from a company called Tanashi Computers, and at first, I was really interested in what they had to say. Basically, Tanashi Computers is trying to build inexpensive computers for kids powered by Android. Basically, what you have is a laptop shell with Android baked in, and then it relies on Google's Family Link to monitor and limit kids' activities. This year, Tanashi is introducing the Scholar, which is a computer with a detachable screen designed for tweens and teens for $300, which isn't bad, but when you go to the website there's very little listed there in terms of like specifications and i could ask them for a spec sheet sure but honestly for 300 dollars i can find any number of chromebooks out there for less than that that will do as good or a better job plus they have an older product a two-in-one on their website that runs and i'm not kidding here android 7 and they're still selling it to for 179 dollars yikes bro and Back to the news. Wow, Razer has some really amazing gaming stuff going on this year, but nothing is cooler than its Project Brooklyn gaming chair concept. Now, bear in mind that this is a concept prototype, but this gaming chair has two arms that extend out from the back of it, up and around and in front of the chair, before rolling open a 60-inch flexible OLED screen that surrounds the gamer in the chair. You want to talk about immersive experiences, this is immersive. And probably insanely expensive, don't forget about that. And by the way, also cool as all hell, I really want one, but I don't have the room or the money for one, but I really want one. Now, back to the inbox. A company called Moly, as in HOLY MOLY, introduced the world's first robotic kitchen, and I gotta say, it's kind of cool. But predictably, it's also very expensive. The robotic kitchen costs somewhere in the neighborhood of $300,000, but it's a fully self-contained unit that's mounted into a wall. It contains an overhead fridge, stove, oven, sink, and all the pots and pans and accessories that you could need. The sexy part comes in the form of two robotic arms that come down and actually do the cooking. That came out wrong, but you know what I mean. Moly can cook over 5,000 different recipes from scratch and clean up afterwards, and suddenly, I just don't want to cook anymore. So let's get back to the news. And finally, this one is a twofer, as we're looking at the NES Lavi Mini, which is a fairly powerful netbook-sized computer that doubles as a gaming console. It's got an 8-inch touchscreen that's got a 1900 by 1200 resolution, Intel Core i7 processor, 16 gigabytes of RAM, 256 gigabytes of storage. There's no trackpad, but it is a touchscreen, so there's that. But this mini computer also comes with a docking station and two gaming controllers that snap onto each side, kind of sort of like a Nintendo Switch, but for gaming. 
And the docking station allows you to connect the Lavi Mini to a full-size TV or monitor and do full-size computer things on it, like gaming at 60 hertz. It's just so tiny and cute and weird, and I kind of love it. And by the way, it runs full Windows 10 because of course it does. So that means Steam and Fortnite, you name it. The other link in the show notes comes from friend of the show, Chris Velasco, who sat down with David Bennett, who is the CEO of Lenovo Japan and the CEO of the company that built the Lavi Mini. They sat down to talk about what it takes to make a prototype and then ship it to market. It's a pretty cool look at our friends from Engadget and our friends from Lenovo bringing a really cool thing to the masses. That being said, the Levy Mini is not in the consumer market just yet, but we're hoping to see it sometime in the not-too-distant future. Now, that doesn't encompass all the news that we saw from CES, but some of the pitches I received turned into features and reviews and interviews that will be coming to Digital Trends and the podcast in the not-too-distant future. But for now, we're going to wrap up our CES coverage. This year was, well, I'll say it again, it was weird. And I suspect that I could have gotten done more had I gotten my registration done sooner. Next year, I'm hoping to attend in person at the behest of Benefit of the Dowd, which will be amazing. But that will be then. For now, virtual CES was both interesting and a little disappointing. I miss seeing the people there. I miss making the connections and networking. And frankly, I miss the parties. But I look forward to next year when I anticipate I'll be back with sore feet and a couple of hours of sleep surrounded by tech that's just waiting to impress. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed our virtual tour through the virtual show that was Virtual CES. Virtually, it was kind of cool, but also very busy. I'd like to thank co-producer Cliff for all of his hard work behind the scenes, but most of all, and as always, I would like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.